We are going to be in the book of Judges again today. If you've been with us, we're all the way up into chapter 7. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 25. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or you don't own a Bible, I invite you to use one of the ones we have tucked away in the pew there. And you'll find out where we're at on page 170 or thereabouts. Uh, You'll also notice large numbers and small numbers. The large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, We invite you to follow along there and then take that Bible with you if you don't own one. Uh, We want you to have it. uh, We want you to read it and to love it. So thus far in Judges, we've seen, uh, seen a few things. We've seen the cycle of sin repeating itself, right? We've seen uh, broken people and a faithful God. We've seen Israel uh, seemingly be obedient and then disobey. And as the text says it in chapter 2, uh, whore after or go after other gods and commit spiritual adultery against the Father. And they've been trapped in this sin, and what happens is they end up oppressed because of their sin. And bad things happen usually when you're oppressed uh, from from the enemy. And eventually they cry out to God, and he will raise up a deliverer, or a judge, if you've been following along. And the judge delivers the people, God delivers his people through the judge, and they're restored. And then the cycle repeats itself. It's a little bit like if you've ever read the directions on a bottle of um, shampoo. Uh, Was it rinse, wash, repeat? It's kind of like that, what's going on there. Uh, they're sinning, uh, repenting, and then repeating it all over again. Uh, and it's just this circle you can think about. It's flowing uh, through judges. And so uh, a few weeks ago, we saw God. Uh, Midian is oppressing Israel, and they've been oppressing him for a long time. And Israel cries out, but there's a break in this pattern, if you remember. And a prophet comes along, and he, he tells Israel that you have not obeyed the voice of God. Yet, despite their lack of repentance, God in his goodness comes to the people. And he's going to deliver them anyway. And that's where we meet this man, Gideon, right? He's in a wine press hiding from the enemy. He's in a wine press beating out grain. If you remember, uh, the angel of the Lord says to a mighty man of valor, They begin to have a conversation and uh, Gideon figures out that this angel of the Lord is in fact God. And he gives him an offering and the offering is consumed on the rock. Then Gideon tears down the idols of his father and of his people and of himself. And he makes it out of that alive. Then he disbelieves God. He walks in unbelief and he lays out the fleece, if you remember last week. And God in his goodness, uh, he answers this test, even though uh, it typically would make him angry. Remember, Gideon was in sin there, but God, in his kindness, went there and helped Gideon's unbelief. He helped him to believe. And all that brings us to the text today where we're at. It seems that Gideon is finally ready to fulfill his task. He's finally ready to become in practice what God has declared him to be, a mighty man of valor. It's time for Gideon to go to battle. So what I want you to see is our text is going to raise and answer a question. It's going to be, who deserves the glory? Who deserves the glory? And I hope after our time uh, together today, you'll be able to answer that question with confidence. Who deserves the glory? Uh, We're going to learn a lesson today uh, that we need to learn over and over again in our own lives. I I need to learn it daily myself. uh, And that is, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. We're going to break it down into three basic sections. Uh, the first one, we're going to talk about how God gets his glory. The second one, we're going, to, we're going to talk about how God calms Gideon's fears. And in the third section, we're going to talk about how God gives the victory. 
That's God gets his glory. God calms Gideon's fears and God gives the victory. I'm going to exhort you this morning to boast in the Lord, to be reassured and to stand in the place of faith. To boast in the Lord, to be reassured and to stand in the place of faith. Before we get into the text, uh, allow me uh, to pray this morning. Father, everything that we have, we have received from you. And I pray this morning that we might recognize that and admit our weaknesses. We admit that we need you to be our strength. Father, we need you now to communicate to us clearly. Father, I pray that you would filter uh, my words so that we might only hear that which is from you. And I pray that you would use your holy word to stir our minds and our hearts and our affections that we might love you more. Father, use your word to change us, to change our lives. Don't allow us to encounter you and to leave the same. Father, help us to see you as precious, to love you above all else. Speak to us now. Amen. So on the heels of the famous fleece in chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Any one of whom that I say to you, This one shall go with you, or that one shall go, he shall go. Or this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, he shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who have lapped the water, I will save you, and I will give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So to summarize what's going on here, Gideon uh, has a bunch of guys with him, 32,000 in fact. And they're getting ready to go into battle against the Midianites who are oppressing Israel. And God says to Gideon, quite simply, you have too many men. This is a little awkward because that's not typical military strategy, right? Less is not usually more going into a battle. And so God whittles his army down to a mere 300 men. Now, we're not talking 300 Spartans like in the movie, if you saw that. Uh, they're not mighty warriors where they're going to be crazy. This is just 300 Israelites. In fact, they're not even going to have swords later on, but we'll get there. So the question we're going to ask is, why on earth is God shrinking in the army? You need more men to win a battle, not less. Why is God shrinking the army? 
Well, it's not about numbers here. It's about hearts. You see, God could simply have routed the enemy with 300,000 men, 300 men, three men, or even one man. See, Israel's deliverance from the enemy is about a little bit more than just defeating the enemy. It's more than just defeating their oppressor. It's about supplanting the false gods of Midian. It's about destroying the Midianites and destroying their idols. You see, the only reason that Israel is oppressed in the first place is because they've whored after the false gods. They've bowed down to them. They've feared them, even though God has told his people that he requires exclusive devotion. Yet they have not obeyed his voice. The mere evacuation of the Midianites from Israel's land would not deal with the true problem. It's a little bit like if you've ever done gardening. It's kind of like just cutting away the top of a weed. It doesn't get rid of the problem, does it? To get rid of the weed, you must root it out. You must pull it up by the root. Likewise, God seeks to reclaim the hearts of his people by reclaiming his glory from the counterfeit gods. This is why he shrinks the army. God knows the hearts of men. He knows, as Jeremiah says, that the heart is deceitful above all else. He knows that human nature is such that if there is the smallest, the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. Look at verse 2. God knows that if he delivers Israel with a large army, that their hearts will deceive them into thinking that they've won because of their own power. He knows that they'll be puffed up with pride. This will simply breathe life into their idolatry instead of choking it out. If Israel is granted the victory with the large army that Gideon has at his back, they will say to themselves, my own hand has saved me. This is a little bit intense, right? Think about it. When you boast in your own ability, in your own talent, in your own moxie, in your career, in something that you have, you boast over and against the Lord. As if you've done these things yourself. As if you're due the credit. When we boast in ourselves, we set ourselves up as alternative saviors, as alternative gods. And we take from God that which is his glory. We attempt to steal God's glory. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a great danger to believe that that we have saved ourselves. And this is the first lesson of the gospel, that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves by our own hand, but only by gracious action of God. And it's a lesson that we must learn daily, that we are saved by grace alone. And that everything that we have is a gift from a wonderful Savior. As Malcolm Gladwell realizes from a secular perspective in his book, Outliers, uh, we did not choose to be born or where we would be born. We didn't choose our parents or our genetic material. We're all products of our genetics, our circumstances, and our choices. Two-thirds of what we become is out of our control entirely. Moreover, even the choices that we make are indelibly tethered to our genes and our circumstances. The point is clear, as Paul says in Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Where have you bragged about your own abilities? 
as if you did not receive them? Where have you claimed the victory that belongs to God as if he did not win the victory for you? Where have you said, I am due the credit? How do you say, look at what I have done instead of, look at what Christ has done? All that we have is a good gift from God and these things should lead us to yearn for him. To praise him in joyful astonishment. Yet we're all prone to pretending. We're subject to puffing ourselves up. Beating our chests. We have all at one point or another attempted to attribute to ourselves the honor that is due to God. We, like Israel, though we might not know it, all struggle with this pride. I think that's why C.S. Lewis writes of pride. There's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. We can't see it because it blinds us to the truth about ourselves, about others, and about who God is. It causes us, as Luther said, to be bent in on ourselves. Pride turns a man inward to find his purpose and to find his satisfaction. Pride looks into self, and it looks for power. It wants the self to be ultimately powerful. As Lewis comments further, pride is a wish for power. I think Keller illustrates this well in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Do y'all remember Bernie Madoff? He was in the news a little while back. But, but Keller writes this, When Bernard Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a $65 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollar Ponzi scheme, he publicly blamed his pride. At some point in the past, he had faced a year in which he should have reported significant losses, but he could not admit his failure as a money manager. He could not accept the loss of power and the loss of reputation that such an admission would bring. Once he began to hide his weaknesses through the Ponzi scheme, he then couldn't admit his error. All the while, the scheme grew. He always convinced himself. He was always thinking he could work his way out. Powerful people, prideful people, they don't like to admit how weak they really feel. That is the problem with pride. It looks to its own power, its own strength, rather than to God. It denies that which is true. It turns us into the center of the universe instead of Christ. Pride cannot admit fault or failure. It cannot admit weakness It cannot ask for the help of a savior. Augustine's words are as true now as they were when he penned them. He said this, For the dominion of the Almighty cannot be eluded, and he who will not piously submit himself to things as they are proudly feigns and mocks himself with a state of things that do not exist. Another person paraphrased Augustine this way, The life of pride is a life of self-destructive fakery an entrapment to a false and self-centered matrix of twisted unreality. The prideful person lives in an unreality. The prideful boast in their own powers, their own abilities, and they seek after their own glory. They do not ask for help. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's only the poor 
that beg for the bread of life. It's only the poor that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's only the needy that ask for help. See, God doesn't save us in spite of our weaknesses. He saves us because of our weaknesses. He doesn't save us in spite of our weakness, but because of it. It's only when we're weak that he makes us strong. God's saving power only works when we admit that we have no worthiness or goodness in ourselves. Jesus illustrates this well in uh, Luke chapter 18. It's a parable you might be familiar with. Starting with verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who trust in themselves cannot be saved because they refuse to look for, to God for help. The parable shows us a little bit what repentance looks like. A true perspective of ourselves and of our position before God. It helps us to step out of unreality and into reality. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. That we have fallen dramatically, desperately short of the glory of God. When we see God for who He is, we see ourselves as we are. Weak and in need of a Savior. It's only then that we can turn from ourselves. Turn from being bent in on ourselves, focusing on our own navels, and set our eyes to Jesus, asking him to forgive us. It's only then that we can be made right with God. Only when we come to the end of our strength will God's love become truly precious to us. When we realize how much we desperately need him. Have you realized that you need him? Are you weak? Are you poor in spirit? Can you think of a time in your life where God has intentionally weakened you so that you would put your confidence in him? Have you ever witnessed God work through and in your weaknesses? Do you find God's love and mercy truly precious? When was the last time you really thought about your sin? Really sat in your sin and allowed yourself to be sorry over it? So that you might more greatly appreciate God's forgiveness and his grace. Do not presume upon the grace of God. For that is pride. God anticipates Israel's pride, their uh, their propensity to say, I've saved myself by my own hand. And so he takes measures to remove any reasonable reason for the nation to think that the victory is their own and is a result of their own efforts. He shrinks the troops to 300. And the, she, the scene shifts in verse 9. 
Got tongue tied there. The scene shifts in verse nine. That same night, the Lord said to him, that's Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah's servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as sand is on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp and came into the tent of Midian and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered him, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and the entire camp into his hand. As soon as Gideon heard of the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Block writes of this exchange. To Gideon, the reduction of forces to 300 men must have seemed insane. But Yahweh, that's God, continued to be patient with Gideon. His prescription for the man's unbelief this time was a nocturnal visit to the enemy camp with his right-hand man. God knew that Gideon would overhear the conversation among the Midianites, and that he would give, that would give him new courage to launch the attack. I love how God knows Gideon's heart here. Instead of condemning Gideon because of his unbelief, he encourages him. Gideon had already had the fleece and a number of other things to help him know that God would keep his word. But with only 300 men, can you, can you blame the guy for sweating a little bit? I mean, after all, they've got, uh, they've got like locusts. They're like locusts, there's so many of them. Camels as many as sand on the seashore. That's a lot of camels. But there's a whole bunch of them. I understand Gideon's worry here. But God doesn't wait for Gideon to ask this time. He, he engages him. And he graciously encourages him by sending him down to hear the dream of the enemy. I, I, I just love this whole scene. Gideon goes down to be emboldened. And then we read, like, the enemy's thick as locusts. They have more camels. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. And I kind of think at that point in the text, sarcastically, this is really positive and encouraging. Thanks. But then he hears the conversation in verse 13. The man telling his dream to another dream, or to another man. Basically, he dreams that a loaf of bread rolls or tumbles into the camp, hits a tent, flips a tent, and the tent's flat. What? And his friend, like his buddies there, clearly understands what that means. Clearly, this means that Gideon, the son of Joash, is going to come in and he's just going to ruin all of us. He's going to have a huge victory. Like, there's no doubt. Gideon, who had been afraid and hiding in a wine press, fears the enemy, now will be emboldened. I think the interpretation of the dream and the dream itself and God putting Gideon in the circumstance in the first place reveals God's sovereign control over all things. Reveals his infinite strength. Gideon's fear leaves him as he realizes that it's the enemy that's trembling beneath their armor. 
at this point, Gideon seemingly wakes up and his fear shifts. If you remember all the way back in chapter 6 in those first 10 verses, one of the things that the prophet of the Lord says is that the people are fearing the surrounding people, the Midianites, and false gods. Gideon had been fearing the false gods. He'd been fearing the enemy when he should have been fearing the only true God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Gideon fears. He worships. He'd been reassured of God's favor and he responds by obeying God's command. This is surely a right response, right? Jesus tells us this in the Gospel of John. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, Gideon has a unique command from God, right? We're not all called to go into battle against the Midianites. But nonetheless, the principle applies. He knows what God's called him to do, and so he's going to wholeheartedly obey as an act of worship, as an act of love. This is how he's going to demonstrate his love for God, by being obedient. God also gave Gideon everything he needed to be obedient. He knew that Gideon was doubtful and kind of wavering. He knew that he needed to be reassured before he would be truly worshipful. Thankfully for Gideon and for us, we know a reassuring God. He reassures Gideon of his favor here. and In the New Testament, uh, he reassures us. I mean, 1 John is written so that uh, we can know that we have come to know him. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a sign and seal of our inheritance, of our adoption into the family of God. Yet still, with all these things, we still need reassurance, just like Gideon. I mean, Gideon meets the angel of the Lord and has his offering burnt up. He has his life preserved after he tears down the uh, idols of his town. God gives him the sign and the fleece twice. Despite all that, Gideon still needs to be reassured, and so do we. I think we often think, uh, I'll never doubt God again. And then, sure enough, uh, very soon, we become indifferent or anxious. We're not any different from Gideon. We rarely relax and truly trust God. No matter what God has done for us, our hearts are quite stubborn. And they find it very, very hard to joyfully and confidently trust and live by God's promises. This is why it's crucial that we understand the gospel. This is why it's crucial that the gospel is the foundation of our faith. You've heard me say many times, the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian faith, but it's also the A to Z of the Christian faith. It's the means by which we are saved, and it's the means by which we grow in Christ. It's the gospel that reassures us. It is by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we're even able to be saved. The righteous for the unrighteous. He died for us, for our sins. When we doubt his love for us, we need only remember the nails in his hands and the crown of thorns upon his head. God reassures us as he leads us into a deeper knowledge of him, a deeper love of him, into worship. If you need reassured, look to the cross. Now that Gideon's been reassured, he's ready, finally, to lead his company of 300 men into battle. 
verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into companies of three. I'm sorry, three companies of 100 is how it, it comes out. And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them. Trumpets and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So we've got some trumpets, we've got torches, but the torches are inside of empty jars. So they're not letting any light out. Verse 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars that they held in their hands, revealing the torches in their right hands. And they blew the trumpets. Then they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army, that is Midian's army, ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. I'm going to skip all those hard names to verse 23. They fled a long ways. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh. And they pursued after Midian. Midian's running away. And uh, Gideon has sent word to other parts of Israel to basically meet them in their flight. So Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country in Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oriv and Zev. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zev they killed at the winepress of Zev. Then they pursued Midian. And they brought back the heads of Oreb and Zev to Gideon across the Jordan. They cut off guys' heads and brought them back to Gideon. That's pretty awesome, I think. Especially if I was younger, I would have loved that story. So, so what happens here is Gideon divides the guys into the 300 he's got. He divides them into three groups of 100. And he gives them trumpets, jars, and torches. These are usual weapons of battle. No. <laughs> and they surround the enemy camp. I, I, what are these guys thinking? They're just following Gideon. We don't have their thoughts in the scripture, but I imagine they're probably going, what? No swords? Only 300 of us? Are you sure? I, I don't know. Anyhow, they follow him and they surround the camp. And as the guards are changing at the changing of the guard in the middle of the night, his men blow their trumpets and break their jars, revealing the torches, right? And they shout. This is actually really, really smart. Because there's total darkness. They surround the camp. They, they have the torches, but the enemy can't see them. And so when the torches are broken, it reveals the light, and they scream out and blow the trumpets. There's just all kinds of commotion and chaos. So as some of the guys that weren't on watch are waking up and coming out of their tents, in the darkness, what they see are shadowy figures, those that are coming off of the watch, coming towards their tent. And in the midst of the chaos, by the time you realize that that's your friend, you've probably killed him. And so the Lord turns all their swords against one another, and they're just fighting amongst themselves. And I love verse 21 there. Uh, it just says that they stand in place, right? They just stand and watch God give the victory. It's really a marvelous thing. Every man stood in his place around the camp.
think in many ways this strategy was Gideon's. He is indeed a mighty warrior after all, just as God had said. Yet truly the tactic was God's. After all, Gideon would never have chosen 300 men from 32,000 if God hadn't told him to. And Gideon would never have known the spirit of nervousness that existed among the Midianites if God had not told him to visit their camp. God gives each of us gifts to use in his service, such as Gideon's previously unseen military genius. But he also gives us the circumstances which allow us to use our gifts. See, even in our successes, we can and should praise God for giving us both the means and the opportunity to be successful. And Gideon is successful. I love that his men shout, a sword belonging to the Lord and to Gideon. This is a magnificent irony, isn't it? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon? They aren't carrying any swords. As it turns out, the only swords are those that are in the enemy's hands. And they're turned upon one another. They simply watch God give the victory, Israel does. They stand around the camp in the place of faith. As the enemy flees, they, we find out that Gideon sent messengers through the hill country and they're going to meet uh, the enemy and bring Gideon back their heads. But notice this also. This is just one of those neat things I like to point out. The circularity of this section of scripture is awesome. If you remember, we met Gideon in a wine press. And his first reassurance from God came when the angel of the Lord uh, devoured the offering with uh, fire on the rock. Notice how the kings of God's enemies are killed. Gideon's enemies are defeated. They're killed at a rock and at a wine press. I just think that's cool. God uses the gifts. I'm sorry, Gideon uses the gifts that God has given him to worship and obey God. What gifts has God given you? What circumstance has he placed you in that you might utilize your gifts to his glory? The text has shown us, I hope, that the glory is God's alone and that he uses weak people, people like you and me and like Gideon, people that need to be reassured of his goodness, people like us to accomplish his will. His faithfulness is on display. He gives the victory. Because of Jesus, we can see ourselves rightly in the presence of God. We can be reassured that we have received his grace. We can boast in what he's done. We are weak, but he is strong. What a glorious Savior. We can stand firmly in the place of faith, looking out from ourselves to the cross. And it is in Christ that we boast. It is Jesus that deserves the glory. Indeed, salvation is from the Lord.